Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. We're so excited to be relaunching our Chamber podcast. We have new equipment, a new recording studio, and a new name. We are now the Sharing Your Sweat Equity, a business podcast, and we are so excited for our first episode. Our first episode actually took us out of our recording studio. We are on the road with Senator Rodriguez in Austin. So we want to have a big thank you to Senator Rodriguez for welcoming us and letting us take over his office today. Thank you for joining us today, Senator. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm I'm glad to be your first one (laughs) in the podcast. Well, we had to make sure that we made you our first one, especially Mm -hmm. since this is a very special on-the-road episode. Mm -hmm. We're really excited to be able to do this. So how is session going so far? Well, so far, not too bad. I think we're in a slow in a period uh, when we start uh, sessions generally uh, unless you have emergency items you are pretty much doing resolutions on the senate floor a few committees have started to meet uh, but mine have not uh, they start this week later this week as a matter of fact so, uh, so it's kind of slow right now but we are starting to crank it up we've got some major issues that we're uh, already beginning to debate I'm sure that your staff will be picking it up as we get closer and closer to May and putting in a lot more hours, right? A lot more hours. Right now I can go home uh, on Thursday afternoons <laughs> and see my constituents on Fridays back in El Paso. But, but uh, getting into March, here next month, uh, probably we'll be going five days a week and not be able to go back home in April or certainly not in May. Yeah, in May you'll probably be doing seven days a week uh, by the time we get that, that point. Yeah. We have sessions on Saturdays, yeah. Sundays. And then all of the extra work and hours that they've got to put in getting everything ready before the session closes, I'm sure. That's correct. That's right. So as we're starting off session, what are some of your main legislative priorities? Well, for me, the same ones that I've had since I came to the Senate. Uh, in public education, adequately funding public education, and this is supposed to be the, the session when we fix the broken school finance system. Uh, and right on the heels of public education funding is, uh, of course, access to health care. Uh, maybe because I served as a county attorney representing the Apostle County Hospital District for 17 years. Um, that's representing University Medical Center, um, got really steeped in healthcare law, and and I see a lot of a lot of issues that need to be addressed. We have the highest rates of uninsured, for example, that uh, need coverage. We haven't expanded Medicaid in the state, and we need to do that, reducing out on not only more access to healthcare, but plenty of uh, dollars that would stimulate uh, our economy. Uh, there's uh, issues involving women's health in the arena of healthcare uh, programs that were cut back when I came in in 2011. There are ongoing issues uh, about health professional shortages where we don't have enough doctors, enough nurses, enough dentists, medical assistants, and, um, and dentists, and, and uh, other health allied professions. And so these are all issues that I think are important for us in the state, but especially for for us in my district in El Paso and the far West Texas area, because I represent not just El Paso, I also represent four West Texas counties of Husband, Presidio, Jeff Davis, and Culberson. And so those are more rural, agricultural, ranching communities versus 
the urban center that El Paso is. Well, you mentioned healthcare, and I know that a lot of our small businesses are concerned about healthcare costs. Yes. So what could take place in the state legislature? I think a lot of people think of it more as a federal issue that has to do with Obamacare, and it's got to get solved at the federal level. So what are some of the things that the state legislature can do to help minimize costs, not only for just consumers, but also small businesses that are providing that insurance, providing those options to their employees? Well, right, and I think that that's been one of the issues with the Affordable Care Act. Uh, I, I'm supportive generally of the Affordable Care Act, but I do know that there are some areas that need to be fixed uh, and the high cost for small businesses has been one of those. Uh, the role for the state is that the state can pass laws since we didn't embrace uh, Medicaid expansion. Uh, we, can, we can pass laws at the state level that address some of these issues. For example, I have filed a bill, uh, Senate Bill 145, I believe, that um, uh, maintains coverage for pre-existing conditions. You know, during the last election, both Democrats and Republicans were supportive of maintaining that in our health insurance coverage. Um, and the bill also calls for uh, requiring that there be the basic essential uh, coverage for, for uh, people that, uh, that obtain health insurance. And we're working on a, on a broader bill that would expand Medicaid through the private uh, sector, kind of sort of like a public-private partnership, uh, where in all of these we can incorporate features that, that uh, take into account some of the concerns that have been expressed for the federal statute, uh, such as the cost for small business. So beyond healthcare being one of the top concerns for small business, the other thing that we keep seeing is talent development for our small businesses. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned a little bit earlier education, and that is a key component of making sure that we have a trained workforce that can supply our small businesses, that can work for them, that can help them achieve their goals. And so I think that it's twofold. It's not just students going to college, but it's also students getting technical training as well. So what are some of the legislative items that you're looking at to help with the technical training but also helping to finance public education for middle schools, high schools, where those critical career choices are being made. Yes, well, fortunately, the uh, interim committee on school finance, and that's the Public uh, Education uh, Reform Commission, uh, has recommendations that cover not just uh, more investment in our in our public schools uh, and and uh, addressing some of the uh, needs of uh, a certain student populations, English language learners, special needs students, uh, gifted and talented disadvantaged students. It also uh, recommends investing in uh, career and technology training programs uh, and, and with the recognition that not everybody's going to go to college, not everybody wants to go to college, but that there's opportunities to provide uh, training and education on uh, on careers that you know are of interest to our young people, uh, whether they be in the in the technological arena or other areas, uh, you know, electricians, plumbers. I mean, you name it. Uh, there's high-paying jobs in those positions, as we know, when 
we call one of them to come <laughs> over to our home. Um, but, and so the, the good news is that in the last several sessions, there's been a lot of focus on career and technology training and educational opportunities through the community college programs, getting associates, arts degrees, uh, and certificates. Uh, one of the areas that I always am concerned about is to make sure the state puts enough money into our skills uh, workforce development fund. Right, and uh, a lot of small businesses access that that's to correct. enhance their, their employees that they already have. Exactly. And so I, I think that that area is going to be receiving a lot of attention in this session as we address not only school finance with regard to our public schools um, overall, but also specifically the need to invest more in career training and job skills development programs. I think that one of the conversations that we've had with a lot of small businesses is that the change from focusing onto more technical skills for students to get is twofold. You have to have the conversation at the school level and make that training available. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, you also need to have a change of dialogue at home where you're not just pushing college education, you are making this another option. So how do we as a community start to change the dialogue surrounding what would be technically um, and traditionally considered blue collar jobs? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, uh I mean, it starts at home with the recognition that uh, what the 21st century economy requires is better prepared, better trained, and educated uh, workforce. And that can mean either having your four-year college degrees and graduate education, or in, it could, but it also means the, the career fields uh, with, uh, with uh, techn technology, training, communications. Um, and, and I think that that's part of, for example, in the state policy expressed in the, in the uh, 60 by 30 right. higher education plan, which is that we need to have by the year 2030, at least 60% of our, of our workforce, workforce uh, with uh, either career technology training opportunities, uh, degrees, certificates, or four-year college degrees, because that's the only way we're going to compete. And so I, I believe that, that through that effort, through the recommendations out of the uh, Public Finance Commission uh, for this session on school finance, uh, through other initiatives that we launched uh, in the last two sessions that we are now much more conscious of the importance of career and, and technology training for our kids. Hopefully we'll start seeing a change in, in the home environment where that is encouraged because like you mentioned plumbers, electricians, when we call them over to our house yeah. we realize just how lucrative of a business that can be but even HVAC uh, repair or elevator technicians. Yes. I mean, they they really have a lot of opportunities in El Paso and and beyond that. So hopefully we can start changing that conversation at home. So the other topic that I wanted to touch on is something that I think Texas is going to get a lot of attention, mm -hmm. um, and that is marijuana legislation. So yes. can you tell us a little bit about some of the legislation that 
is out there right now and what the differences are between the different bills? Well, there's basically three types, three different types of bills, and I have found all three. <laughs> Covering uh, all, your, on, on, all of your bases, on the, right? <laughs> on the Senate side, uh, Representative Joe Moody has filed uh, some on the, on the House side. Um, I, I have filed a similar bill to Joe Moody's bill on the House dealing with decriminalization of marijuana. Now that is just some, a bill that addresses uh, the fact that uh, we've had for many, many years very strong laws in the books that uh, provide harsh punishment for uh, marijuana possession or, or, uh, or uh, uh, access to, to marijuana. And uh, we know from the data that our jails and our prisons are full of uh, young people and people of color disproportionately so uh, because of having used marijuana. Now, decriminalization means that instead of punishing uh, possession of a small amount of marijuana, when we talk about a small amount, we're talking under an ounce, mm -hmm. uh, being simply a fine instead of a, a criminal misdemeanor, as it is right now. Okay. And, and, um, and so a lot of states have started to move in that direction. Even, even conservative policymakers and conservative uh, uh, organizations like the Texas Public Policy Foundation here in the state realize that we need to do something about decriminalizing small amounts of marijuana. That's one type of bill. And another one is just the um, effort to provide medicinal marijuana, to establish a medicinal marijuana program in the state, as you have in New Mexico, right next right. door to us, uh, Colorado and other places. Um, and so, so that's another type of bill. I have filed that bill. Uh, a third bill is just simply outright legalization of marijuana. And the two bills that I have filed for medicinal marijuana and legalization are uh, constitutional amendments. Mm -hmm that would have to be approved by the voters. My attitude is, you know, why don't we just let the voters decide whether they want to legalize marijuana, whether they want to have a medicinal marijuana program in this state mm -hmm. for different kinds of, of uh, conditions. Right. Uh, I was a co-author of the only bill that has passed the legislature uh, two sessions ago with uh, Senator Eltife, who's now the the chairman of the UT System Board of uh, Regents, by the way. Uh, I signed on to his bill, but it's a very limited bill that allows uh, uh, medicinal marijuana, but it's, it's, not, it's not the, the intoxicating type of marijuana. We're talking about the cannabis oil right. that doesn't have those levels of uh, THC, they call it, that is the... Uh, that is the uh, inebriating part of, of the plant um, to treat what is called intractable epilepsy. Now these are very serious cases of epilepsy that affect uh, a lot of our children and, and even some adults that really pretty much renders them um, uh, incapable of carrying on normal lives because they have these uh, tremendous seizures on a constant basis. So the state did pass that, that law, and so there, there is a bill by Senator Jose Menendez that I uh, have signed on, or I'm going to sign on to, 
that expands the number of conditions that can be covered under the what's called the Texas Compassion Act, which is that bill that we passed for intractable epilepsy. And so, for example, he's looking to add uh, cancer, you know, at, at uh, uh, HIV, at uh, certain uh, forms of the autism spectrum, and other severe chronic conditions where people can benefit from the from the medicinal properties of uh, cannabis oil. Um, so basically, that's the panorama of bills. Now, if you ask me. How many of them have stand a chance of passing? <laughs> that was my next question. I'm sure you were going to ask. I'm anticipating <laughs> that. Uh, I hope that we can pass some bill that uh, that decriminalizes small amounts of possessions of marijuana. Um, and I'm hoping that we can at least expand on the existing law that we passed two sessions ago uh, to add more conditions to it. Because I think that there's... Uh, a tremendous need for for that type of uh, medical uh, support. Right. Uh, now, legalization, I think, is going to take some time here in the state. We being realistic, um, and uh, I don't mind saying I filed the bill so we can continue having the, having the conversation and the education around the issue. As more and more states have started to do it across the country, I think we can learn from. Uh, how implementation took place, whether it was really uh, 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 something that did create the kind of harm and conditions that a lot of people are alarmed about. A lot of people think that marijuana is, for example, addictive. None of the literature, I haven't seen a single piece of literature, medicine, uh, medical literature, scientific literature that says that marijuana is addictive. Uh, so, there's a lot of education that still needs to be done around the issue. So when we talk about decriminalization, one of the things that other states have been doing is also having that act retroactively, so it affects people who are currently incarcerated. Is that a part of the bill that you proposed, or is that no. legislation that would need to take place separately? It would need to be, uh, it would need to be uh, forward, uh, forward applying, as, as we say, it, it can be retroactive. So we've talked a little bit about education, healthcare, marijuana legislation, because that's going to be a hot topic that everybody is going to be discussing. What are some other main issues that you want El Pasoans and your constituents to know that you're fighting for right now at the legislature? Uh, on healthcare or other issues? On any other issues that oh, you have. Okay, well, um, in the area of education, I'm, I'm fighting hard to uh, increase what's called the weight or the funding for English language learners. Uh, because we have an outdated formula that was passed way back in 1984. Uh, it doesn't provide enough funding for uh, covering the cost of more certified uh, bilingual teachers. Uh, we have a shortage of, of certification for bilingual teachers, of uh, the materials of the classrooms and things of that nature. Uh, I have a bill that uh, uh, that uh, provides more resources for special education students uh, because this state has lagged in providing adequate funding for those students, in my view, and I think the Department of Education has already come down on the state because of that. Um, 
I have a number of bills that address uh, uh, what I would call uh, equality and, and the civil rights of people. For example, a non-discrimination bill that would apply to members of the LGBTQ community in terms of them accessing housing, employment, and other uh, things that we take for granted. Uh, I have bills that uh, expand voting rights, you know. Uh, we, 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 we try to encourage more civic engagement, more involvement in the democratic process by trying to open up the voting process rather than limiting it. That just was reported in the press with regard to the Secretary of State's uh, issuing a list of almost 100,000 people that they said were non-citizens and 58,000 of them, according to them, uh, illegally voting. Uh, when in fact, you know, they're, they're having to to backtrack because finding out that a lot of those people in the list are in fact U.S. citizens, they're legitimate voters. We, we got, for example, as a result of those lists, 4,000 names for El Paso County. And as of last Friday when I was there, we checked with our elections department, 2,200 of them had already been confirmed to be uh, U.S. citizens. And they're still going through the rest of the list. And so we don't want to, we shouldn't be doing things that discourage people from voting, that create a, a, a fear that uh, people are engaging in voter fraud. I mean, that has been investigated in this state in the past and when we were debating the voter ID law and a handful of cases, less than five cases were found to have involved voter fraud. And so when we talk about the integrity of our voting systems. I think voting rights and the ability to vote, um, you're mentioning some of those voter roll purges is a big issue. But on the other side of things, it's also protecting our voting systems from cyber attacks, things like that. Yes. Do you see legislation that's also addressing those potential issues? I, I believe there's been some bills that have been filed on the House side uh, involving uh, that concern about the, um, the cyber attacks and and uh, the interference with our election uh, system. Uh, I, there's gonna be plenty of bills on, on, on that. Well, my concern is that there may also be some bills that make it harder for people to vote because we see those every session. Last session, there was a bill that I strongly argued against and voted against involving mail-in ballots that, uh, that increased the uh, penalty for people that may be engaging in improper activity to felony level uh, offenses and it, it, it I thought it was a bill that had a chilling effect on people that want to vote by mail. Uh, there are the occasional, we see those from time to time, even in El Paso we've seen that issue come up uh, with people mis misusing the mail-in ballots, uh, but not to the extent that some people, you know, claim required having new legislation that would uh, uh, impose a felony on, on people that engaged in that. And so the concern is that we should be doing everything that we can to open up the election system for legitimate voters. And yes, of course, we should go after those people who, who aren't eligible and are voting. I mean, there's, nobody argues with that. Uh, 
But we've seen too much voter suppression in this state. It's a, it's a state with a history of voter suppression, from the poll tax to excluding, you know, Latinos from juries and, and, and voting in the primaries and African-Americans. In fact, El Paso, I'm very proud, took the lead in those civil rights struggles with uh, lawsuits filed by Dr. Nixon, a longtime African-American physician in El Paso uh, back in the day challenging those kinds of uh, uh, restrictions on, on voting and challenging them successfully in the Supreme Court. And I think as a chamber, we always encourage our members to go out and get out the vote, but yeah. we want to make sure that when we're encouraging them to vote, that their vote is actually being counted, that the votes yes. of their family members are being counted and not being discounted or purged on voter rolls. So right. I think that it is very important the work that the legislature is doing to protect those voting rights, to really protect the integrity of our democracy. I had a meeting with uh, David Wheatley, the, the nominee for Secretary of State, uh, just this morning, uh, about that uh, purge of voter uh, rolls and what could be done to dispel any notions that, that, that the state is going to be suppressing the vote. And, and one of the recommendations I made to him was that he put out uh, information uh, that conveys the strong message that in Texas, we are going to do everything we can to ensure that people who are eligible to vote uh, are given every opportunity to vote without unnecessary obstacles. Uh, because I think this latest incident sent, sent a lot of people uh, uh, feeling that, I would say sent, I mean, made a lot of people feel that uh, they could be subject to prosecution, even though they're citizens. Right, and, and it, it makes them afraid of that. Yeah, absolutely. We heard already of some cases uh, where people were U.S. citizens, voted, and then they got a letter from the elections department saying, uh, you are not properly uh, eligible, you're not eligible to vote. And uh, there was some testimony to that effect by a parent about their child having just turned voting age, very proudly having gone to vote in the midterm elections. And he got a letter from the elections department, not in our county, but in one of the other counties, saying that uh, they needed to prove that they were citizens, otherwise they were going to be prosecuted for uh, voting illegally. And I mean, I think that that just scares people away from the voting process, and especially for that to happen to somebody at such a young age, you don't want to start off your voting career with that experience. Right, so right. Hopefully he'll, he'll come back to the polls, um, and he won't be discouraged from voting. As we're going forward in this, in this session, I think last session there was a lot of contention about things like bathroom bills, um, a lot of discussion about border security, and I think that those are very contentious issues that um, really set, a, set a, a sharp notice of what the partisan divide is. This session, how do you think things are going to be in terms of working bipartisanly on getting some of this legislation passed, moving it forward? Do you see a more hopeful future, a more um, fruitful future for the legislature. Yes, I, I think that the midterm elections had a very tempering uh, effect on, on, uh, on everyone. Uh, everybody admits, including the governor, as he said in his State of the State address, that he notices that there seems to be a more 
uh, a better atmosphere for cooperation and people working on a on a bipartisan basis. And and uh, I think it's good. I, I think I think uh, the elections resulting in 12 new Democrats in the House and two new Democrats in the Senate have helped create that kind of uh, environment because people realize all of a sudden they got to work together and try to see if we can come up with some solutions to some of our state problems. And, and I think that's all good. So I'm, looking, I'm optimistic that we're going to have a much better atmosphere and a much better session than we did a session ago with the bathroom bill, sanctuary cities, and some of those things. Uh, there are some needs that we have in El Paso that are priorities that I should mention mm -hmm. in terms of funding. The debt funding for our dental school at, yes. the, at the School of Medicine is important. Uh, and we are advocating for that. We're, as a delegation, uh, uh, going to seek more funding for our pharmacy school at UTEP. We are working to make sure that the $32 million that we uh, included in the budget last session are allocated for an intelligent transportation system to expedite the trade in, in our ports of entry. Uh, we've had some issues with with uh, trying to get that funding uh, going for us. Uh, we're working, we've already worked with the, uh, and met with the Texas Department of Parks and Wildlife, as well as with the Paso Community Foundation to start looking for funding for a new tramway, the Wilder Tramway. Okay. Uh, these are all things that are important for El Paso and certainly for the economic development of our community. Um, and with more opportunities for for our young people in the healthcare arena, for example, when it comes to the dental school uh, and the pharmacy school, uh, and so we're we're all on top of those issues as well. And I know as a chamber, we're very excited to see the dental school being funded because dentists open up their own practice and then yes. they become chamber members. So we're very excited to see the funding move forward on that. We were excited when we received the funding for the medical school and, and we have doctors opening up their own practices in El Paso and it really does enhance the quality of life in our community. Um, the Weiler aerial, aerial Tramway, I know several of our staff members were very sad and disappointed and concerned about that going away. So I'm sure that they're gonna be very excited to hear that, that we're working on funding to make sure that that stays in El Paso. Right, and in terms of some other bills that are, that are gonna be coming up, uh, there's the uh, uh, tax incentives, tax abatement uh, statutes that are being uh, looked at. Uh, I'm supportive of those kinds of, of uh, incentives because I think, uh, you know, Paso, we need that uh, for, 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 it's good for economic development, good for business. Um, I know there's a, a view uh, current here that that, that just, uh, that's just uh, uh, corporate welfare. As some, <laughs> as, some, as some members say, that we shouldn't be giving them taxpayer money to businesses. But I've seen the benefit of, of, of those uh, types of programs when I was the El Paso County attorney, and the county uh, provided some of those incentives. And, and so uh, I, for one, am supportive of those, the Texas Enterprise Fund and other uh, tools that. Uh, are used here to entice more business development in the state and job creation and opportunities for, for people. 
We want to thank Senator Rodriguez again for joining us and for letting us take over his office in this first episode of our relaunch podcast, Sharing Your Sweat Equity, a business podcast. We are so excited to announce that our second episode will also be on the road. We'll be featuring representative and speaker pro tem, Joe Moody. So make sure to join us for that. Thank you, guys.